So last week we finished up Romans 8, which was sort of a climax point of the book of Romans. And Paul is assuring the church that those who truly belong to God cannot, will not be separated from the love of Christ. And that could be through life, nor death, nor sickness, nor nakedness, all the adversities that Paul lists there. Incidentally, <clears throat> after preaching that sermon, uh, that very night, I got very sick. I'm still a bit sick now. And it's been the sickest I've been in as far as my memory can, can go back. So it was, um, it was a time of, <clears throat> of really reflecting on whether the things that we believe and preach and say are applied when we are suffering in bed due to sickness in this in this case. Now, I would like to confess that at some point I was ungrateful and I even had thought of saying, Lord, why? Why am I getting sick? And I don't think that God spoke to me audibly and anything like that. But <clears throat> reflecting upon the scriptures that we've been expounding, I was ministered by God to know that he will not leave me. He hasn't left me. He will be there. And his faithfulness remains. And our adoration and worship to him should continue regardless. <clears throat> so with that... Today we begin a new chapter in the book of Romans, that is Romans chapter 9. So if you are able, uh, let us please rise for the reading of the, of the word of God in Romans 9, beginning with verse 1, and we're going to go <clears throat> through verse 5. The inerrant and infallible word of God reads as follows. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and <clears throat> unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that your word, once again, provides us with perpetual light from which we can learn and have instruction by you revealing yourself to us who you are, we are able to worship you and love you as you are worthy of doing so. <clears throat> we pray your Holy Spirit gives us understanding for your mighty purpose in saving sinners, both Jews and Gentiles. So provide us, Lord, a heart that is humble and willing to learn. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you may be seated. 
I titled today's sermon, Paul's Sorrow for Israel. Paul's Sorrow for Israel. So where has the book of Romans taken us thus far? If you have not joined our studies as we began in Romans 1, chapter 1, which was quite a bit a while ago, you're going to be caught up right now. So here we go. <clears throat> so far we've learned that the Apostle Paul teaching the church of Rome that there's a condition that natural man has before a holy God, which is a fallen condition. Man is by default lost, a hater of God, gone astray, suppresses the truth of God, and is given over to a reprobate mind. This is when we recall the scripture that says that people end up calling what is good evil, and what is evil calling that good. We are living in those times today. And as nothing is new under the sun, this is what the scripture has been teaching. This is where the heart of man naturally goes towards, towards evil. Now, <clears throat> the audience of the Apostle Paul are both Jewish people, the Israelites, and the Gentiles. To the Jewish folks, he's addressing them in a certain way because a large portion of the Jewish people still thought that they had a superior standing to the Gentiles, to which Paul has been asserting a hard no. That's not true, because God shows no partiality. However, in one sense, <clears throat> which Paul touched back in chapter 3, <clears throat> he did say that, nevertheless, Israel did have some advantages over the Gentile nations. The children of Israel were the chosen people of God in order to bring about the Messiah who would redeem his people from their sins. And then the Gentiles, on the other hand, you know, the, the rest of, of, the, of the people, most of us here, I think we're all Gentiles, are made to understand that <clears throat> as God shows no partiality, they are also under God's judgment. Justification, then, reconciliation between a holy God and a fallen people can only happen, only happen, if God himself provides the remedy for that restoration to happen. Getting right with God cannot be by the Jews trying to fulfill the law harder and harder. Neither will the Gentiles be saved by doing good works, nor in their ignorance of God's law. Therefore, Romans thus far has shown us that a right standing before God is only attainable if God shows people mercy, extending his grace to a guilty humanity, extending his grace. My son and I were listening to a catechism on the way to church this morning, and we were talking about what grace means. And in simple terms, so that a child and we can remember when we talk about God's grace and we talk about it so much that we can overlook what it really means. 
In the way that that kid's catechism says, what is kindness? It says kindness is God's goodness to the underserving. God's goodness, God's kindness to the underserving. So unless God's grace comes in to restore that relationship between him being holy and us being sinners, we are lost unless he acts. Those who are saved, then we are told, by God's grace, are partakers of the greatest promise available in this universe, which is those who are truly children of God are secure in that salvation. So let us take a quick recap of what I just said, noting to some verses. First, we know that the gospel has the power to save anyone. Romans 1.16 I encourage all of us to know this verse by heart. Paul says here, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. The gospel has the power to save anyone. Another key truth here is that mankind in our sinfulness, we suppress the truth of God. Romans 1.18 reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God. And then we learn that the law itself will not save anyone. Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And then we also learn that ignorance of the law will equally send people into judgment. Romans 2.12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So there's no such thing as, well, what if so-and-so has never heard? Well, they're going to perish. Paul answers that. No salvation apart from Christ. In Adam, all have died. And then we come to know then how does the justification happen? How can we become right with God? Romans 5.1 reads, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we learn that those who truly belong to God will not abide in sin. Romans 6, verses 1 and 2 says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then that basically will lead us to the main content of chapter 8, which we just finished last week. And that is the chapter that brings comfort and assurance to the believer. Those who truly belong to God are secure in Christ. And all that happens is for our good and for God's glory. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the first verse in Romans 8. And then it closes knowing that nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Which brings us to today. 
In this new section of the letter to the Romans, will encompass three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11. Paul will go back to address what he started to talk about in chapter 3, detailing what about the Jewish people? What's, what's the deal with them? What's up with Israel? Has the proverbial sh uh, ship sailed and the people of Israel are left behind? And that's it. Here, Paul is anticipating that some could argue that God's promises have failed. Paul has been breaking it down, but somebody could say, wait a minute, Paul. If God made certain promises to his children, why are the children of Israel in such unbelief and disobedience? That is the gist of what Paul is going to be addressing in chapters 9, 10, and 11. So it brings me to what is Paul's main point in our text today, verses 1 through 5. Paul opens up this dialogue, or this monologue rather, by expressing his sorrow for a lost Israel. Expressing his sorrow. And in here comes a warning for both Jews and for us Gentiles. For the Jew, their false assurance were, was, we are the chosen people. We're, we're good to go. Let's, let's do it. And the danger for the Gentile believer, that will be for us, is to say, hey, we are the adopted children of God. Doesn't matter what we do, we are sealed. We're ready to go. So we have to be careful. All right, so let us dig to the text now. <clears throat> Romans 9, verses 1 and 2. This is Paul's sorrow for Israel expressed. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So here we have the opening lines of Paul about to break down what the deal with the Israel with the nation of Israel is. And he opens it up with a heartfelt confession. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. This takes an oath-like statement in which he is testifying, if you will, by two members of the Trinity. Speaking the truth in Christ, right? That's God the Son. And then his conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. By the Son and the Holy Spirit, he's making this oath-like statement. And then he's basically saying, what is that truth that he's expressing? That he is brokenhearted for the nation of Israel. Now, let us remember where Paul just came from. Paul just took us through this high point, this climatic point in the book of Romans, giving us assurance that those who are children of God will not, cannot be separated from God. 
And Paul knows that Israel, by and large, is not part of the recipients of that promise. The Gentiles have been grafted in. And that truth settles in. And Paul says, I have sorrow and unending anguish. And that's exactly that. Emotions of grief, of sadness, of anxiety. What would be the application for us here? I'm just going to give some applications as we go here. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that you felt that way for someone you know who is not saved? This is a call for us to realize the weight of eternal judgment apart from God. As we think about sharing the gospel, as we think about shining the light in the dark world, we must pray that we have the heart of God for the lost. It is not only about speaking about God, about telling somebody about the gospel, just because we have to do it. I mean, that's part of it, but do we have anguish? Do we feel that sorrow that Paul felt for his people because he knew that they were lost? The same sentiment that Paul expresses here is ultimately the heart of Jesus throughout the gospel accounts. Matthew 9.36 reads as follows. When he, meaning Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This, my friends, should be one of our main takeaways today. In evangelism, in praying for people, we must have the heart of Christ, which is expressed by Paul about his fellow Israelites. A broken heart at the fact that people are lost on their way to eternal damnation. If that wasn't so, why would Paul be so sorrowful? It wouldn't matter. But because of the weightiness of what that implies, of the kingsmen of Paul, of the nation of Israel, being in unbelief, he knows the consequence of that. So Paul then confesses this up front. This is his sorrow. This is a major weight on his heart that he knows that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, are lost. By the way, this phrase, I am not lying or I lie not, in another translation, this is part of Pauline phraseology. He uses that in other places in the New Testament. I'll put an example here, 2 Corinthians 11.31. It says, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus... He who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. It is again when Paul is bringing up something so important, an oath-like declaration about himself in order to keep himself accountable to God. 
as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. I once had a bizarre encounter with a Muslim gentleman who was hung up on the fact that Paul had to be lying because he figured if he wasn't lying, why would he keep saying, I'm not lying, I'm not lying. So his argument was, it's just like a kid who's telling you a lie. Right, that is absolutely foreign to what Paul is saying and to the reason why he is saying such oath-like statement. That is in order for him to keep himself accountable on what he is saying. Okay, so that's the upfront confession of Paul, declaration of his sorrow for those who are lost, specifically for the nation of Israel. Secondly, Paul expresses how helpless he feels in the midst of that situation. Romans 9.3 says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That statement is very heavy, friends. Such is <coughs> the sadness of Paul that if it were possible, if an exchange was possible, the word he uses there, to be cut off, anathema, to be cursed, damned, so that he could trade places with his Jewish people, Paul says, I would do it. <laughs> now obviously, this is a hypothetical situation because we know that Paul knows that. In Paul's theology and theology of, of the scriptures, we know that's not possible. It's an expression similar to what Moses said to God when the Israelites were worshiping idols. In Exodus 32, 32, which says, But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Similar sentiment for Moses because of the disobedience of the children of Israel. And essentially, right after that, God responds and says, No, Moses, like, I cut out whoever, I'm going to cut out whoever sins against me. You have no say in that. So as much anguish that we can and should feel for those who are lost, there needs to be an urgency that we, we cannot save them. And therefore that God must show mercy if they are going to transition from death into life. And Romans 9 is going to treat that. He will show mercy on, he, on whom he will show mercy. Compassion on whom he will show compassion. Now the notion, let's entertain this for a minute, the notion that a person can give themselves up to redeem another person is actually addressed in Scripture. Psalm 49, verses 7 and 8. This is a response to both Moses and Paul. It says, Truly no man can ransom another, 
or give to God the price of his life. Another translation says a price for his soul. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. So then the key takeaway there is that the heartfelt need of salvation for someone we know should be very real. That burden of somebody needing salvation. Yet, we cannot save them. No mortal can pay the ransom for another's mortal's life. It's not possible. As a matter of fact, because that's not possible, it's, <coughs> excuse me, because that's not possible, it is the whole reason why God gave his only begotten son. For he is the only one who can pay the ransom for the lost. Jesus has done it. Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. There it is. Can a man pay a ransom for somebody else? Not a mortal man. The man God, Jesus Christ, Almighty? Yes, he can. Only. He's the only one with the moral bank account to do so. Nobody else can. So then, the application for the second point for us today is this. If, theoretically, if it were possible, would you give up your spot as a redeemed individual for those you love who are not saved? Would you be willing to trade places if, theoretically, it was possible? Paul expresses that he would. Moses expressed that he would. Would we? Jesus actually did it. And he accomplished it. And given that it is not possible for us to do it, it should be an indication of how much of a burden do we feel for the lost. If we're thinking, you know what, I'm safe. <laughs> Sorry, guys. You're on your own. One way in which something could be related to giving our life so that others may be saved is when we have tragedies happen in our home, in our church, in that in the affliction of losing a loved one, people will hear the gospel being preached and the Lord saves them. This is why I believe that, especially at funerals, it is very important to preach a clear understanding of the gospel. Point number three brings us to the last two verses, four and five. This is Israel's advantages. It says, they are Israelites, and to them... 
belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul goes into this sudden, epic time of adoration and worship before God here. And Paul's cry in those two verses there is, how can it be that the Israelites were entrusted with the things of God and yet it has escaped them the fact that they should have received the Messiah because he came from among them. Among them. Let us take a quick look at Romans 3, verses 1 and 2, where he brought this up before. The context there is that being an Israelite is not going to save you. Circumcision, rituals, going through the motions. That's the context of that passage there. Romans 3, 1 and 2, it says, right, if, if that's not going to save you, right, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And as we will see soon here, that Paul has picked up this, this thought here in, in Romans 9, the question becomes then, so have the promises of God then failed? Because it doesn't look like people of Israel are being saved. Neither then or even now, right? By and large, I mean, generally speaking. And Paul has a very strong answer to this. He says, no. Promises of God have not failed. Follow me on this. Paul is going to point out that the promises to Israel have not failed and are not forgotten. Why? Because the true Israel are not all descendants according to the flesh, but rather... The true Israel are those who have been circumcised of the heart. The true children of Abraham. The true children of God. Remember when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees and they said, well, you know, we are children of Abraham. According to the flesh, they were. But Jesus told them what? You're actually sons of the devil. Not all who are descendants physically of Abraham are of Israel, are children of God. This is where Paul is going. Now, a lot of people don't like that. That's what the text tells us. Now, yet, <coughs> Israel, physical Israel, is to some degree more responsible for rejecting Christ since they should have known better. There's this principle, <coughs> we have a principle in scripture that the more you're entrusted with, the more that is going to be required of you. Luke 12, 48 says it. It says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. <coughs> and from him to whom they 
and trusted much, they will demand the more. So the key here is that the more knowledge, the more, the more resources we have available, the more accountable we are to God. An application we could find here is the following. Do our kids, do our young adults here in this very church that are growing up in Christian homes, that are hearing the teaching of God's word from this pulpit every Lord's Day, do these kids, do our kids here, our young men, young women here, do they have an advantage over households that do not have that? No. We absolutely do. You do have an advantage. We do not waste the teaching that we have with our kids, prayer time, Bible reading, devotional time, catechizing our kids. Why? Because the oracles of God are entrusted to who? To us. The scriptures belong to us, to the children of God. In the church, in the New Testament, it's called the pillar of God's truth. God's truth and the mystery of the gospel has been entrusted by faith to the church, to us. So may we, as especially as men leading our households, as families, we are going to be accountable for what we do with that knowledge. Just like the children of Israel were entrusted with the oracles of God, guess who is entrusted with the oracles of God? You, today, here. Especially all of you who are head of household here. All the men here. You are being entrusted with the oracles of God. And you will give an account for what you did that with your wife, with your kids, with those around you. So lastly, in closing the passage today, Paul goes into a spontaneous doxology, just praising God. Romans 9, 5, it says, To them, to the Jewish people, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The note here, To all those who believe in the false Christ that is not divine, to those who believe that Jesus is a creature rather than the creator, take note of yet another verse. And for us that are Christians and children of God, let us be reminded that Jesus Christ is Yahweh. He is God Almighty incarnate. And here's another verse that says it. According to the flesh, the Christ, Jesus, he came from the Jewish people. And it says he is God over all. Blessed forever. That is language that is only used of Yahweh. And it is used of Christ. So what can we say? Well. Let us pray that. God gives us the burden for the lost, as Paul is expressing 
his burden for a lost Israel. Let us ask that we will have a humble heart to know that although we cannot ransom another person's soul, that we know who has and who can, and that he is mighty to save. And then lastly, as the church of God, as the church of the living God, entrusted with oracles of God, we will have to give an account for what we do with the oracles of God, with the scriptures, with the teaching of it, and with the application of it in our lives. Because otherwise, we will be just as unfaithful as the children of Israel were. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin this new phase of the book of Romans, may you speak to us directly from your word. May your Holy Spirit guide us and give us prudence and wisdom on how to understand and apply your oracles, Lord. Lord, give us a heart that is broken and burdened for those who are lost, especially those of our families, our extended families, our friends, acquaintances, co-workers, etc. For they need salvation, Lord. May we look to the example that Paul gave and ultimately to the heart of Christ who had compassion on them for this people are like sheep gone astray without a shepherd. Lord, reach those people in your mercy and use us as your humble servants to do so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.